Hey guys, Danny here, Editorial Director of Courier, the magazine all about working better and living smarter. This podcast, Looking Up, is a brand new six-part series that shines a light on small business owners here in the UK that have been going against the odds, getting clever with new ideas, supporting their communities, and sometimes even growing in big ways during the pandemic and beyond. Looking Up is created in partnership with Instagram, which builds products and features to promote small businesses and help them grow in tough times. Right, so we've talked to social enterprises in London, shop owners in Manchester, and community-focused businesses in Brighton. Today, we're heading to Bristol. And as ever, we're joined by Courier's associate editor, Amira Jiwa. Hey, Amira. Hey, Danny. So today is the first day that the UK-wide lockdown happens, lockdown number two. We're in Bristol for today's show. And coincidentally, kind of the theme of today's show are sectors that really were hit hard by that first lockdown. So food and drink and production of TV shows and and film was really hard hit because obviously that involves a lot of people being physically close together. So you uncovered some really interesting stats about Bristol, though, and how resilient it is in terms of small businesses. But of course, this was pre-pandemic. Absolutely, Danny. I mean, honestly, it's it's a great theme for today's episode because Bristol is actually the most likely place in the UK for a new business to survive. There was a big survey done of kind of thousands and thousands of businesses that were set up in, in 2013, you know, which ones are still surviving and kind of functioning five years later. And, and Bristol had the highest number of those. And actually, it was significantly higher than kind of the second close contender. I think 44% of businesses in Bristol that opened in 2013 were still around five years later. You know, it's a tricky time for kind of all businesses across the UK now as they're they thinking about, you know, how they're going to function in the next lockdown. But I think Bristol, probably the, the interviews that you speak to will, will have some, you know, good ideas about how they're going to going to keep moving since they managed it in the first one. Yeah, totally. I mean, as you'll hear, the founders of Black Wave, I mean, they launched their company a year ago. They just celebrated their first year anniversary and they kind of grew their business in the pandemic. And actually, you would think that a lot of work dried up, but since they're so small and nimble, and this is a theme we've kind of been talking about for the past half year, really, they managed to get some interesting commissions. They did some work for BBC and others. And, you know, whereas if you're a giant conglomerate and, you know, you're a dinosaur and you're a bit sluggish, it's probably hard to navigate those choppy waters to use an overused analogy. But I mean, when you're small and nimble, it's much, much easier. Yeah, I think that's definitely an advantage that small businesses have over kind of massive ones. They can be faster, more agile, and and just a bit more reactive. And I think that's definitely something that we'll hear throughout today's show. So today in Bristol, I'm sitting down with two different businesses, both of which launched at pretty much the exact same time last autumn, and both of which made it through all the ups and downs of what the past year, or half year really, has thrown at them. First up is Black Wave Productions, an independent TV and film production company created by Michael Jenkins and Mina Fombo. The two just celebrated the company's one-year anniversary. They received some press back when they launched for being the only black-owned TV production company in Bristol out of more than 100 such companies in the city. I caught up with Mina and Michael to find out what it's like shooting and producing during lockdown and how they've adapted and survived so far. It's definitely been a strange time to start something new, but I guess when you have the vision, we've just sort of stuck to our vision of what we wanted to try and to achieve. And because of the lockdown, certain opportunities, you know, showed themselves. So, I mean, as a filmmaker, I've been making a film about the uh, issues surrounding Edward Colson in Bristol. And obviously I was filming things like filming the Black Lives Matter March. That was, that's something I'd done when it happened about four years ago in Bristol. So I just thought, well, we're going to do it again, film it again. Didn't expect for the statue to get torn 
torn down. So that was, you know, a case of sort of being in the right place at the right time. And that's how we sort of managed to secure, as Black Wave, our first commission with Channel 4 by making a short film about what happened on that day, basically. So, yeah, I mean, opportunities ended up presenting themselves. What happened over this summer, particularly, as Mike said, you know, it really just kind of, I think, opened some doors for things that we were already doing anyway. Some of the industry has woken up to the fact that there is a need for it to tell more of these stories. And I think for us, we've been successful in some of the commissions we've received over the past year because our paths are aligning with what the industry is now looking for. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Because you guys did manage to create some really interesting things over the past year. Half of that year, of course, was during lockdown, or at least during coronavirus. Some really cool things with the BBC you did. How did you manage to actually shoot and produce those things? What challenges did you face? Just with, so the season was called uh, Culture in Quarantine. My film was called Home Carnival Queen, and it was basically looking at exploring black women's voices through the African Caribbean carnival that is represented, you know, in many parts of the world. And uh, originally it was actually pitched to, for people to be dancing in their houses, filmed at home, because lockdown had just started. We had no idea how long it was going to go on for. But we were really lucky to, to get a window where we, where we were allowed to go back out. And just as that happened, it fell in line with our shoot. So there were challenges. We did still have to get up at sort of 5am to make sure the streets were completely empty when we filmed. Trying to get costumes, you know, when you're you know, limited to one location was really difficult. We couldn't get the dancers in the same shot together. We had to film them all separately. But what came through was a really beautiful piece and I'm really proud of, of what the team was able to create. And what about you, Mike? I know you worked on something called We Are Not The Virus. I mean, being a self-shooter, producer-director, it was quite straightforward for me. I mean, during the whole of lockdown, I was sort of filming anyway. I was sort of just out filming the empty streets and people queuing up. And because, I mean, for me, that was just, you know, seeing shots, seeing perspectives that I'd never seen before. I thought, well, I just need to capture it because as a filmmaker and a sort of documentarian, that's just what I like to do. I like to just film stuff. I think with lockdown happening, a few jobs like got cancelled or postponed. I think that felt like a bit of a setback, but... I guess as a creative, we sort of use these times to really, to create, basically. I can't focus and I can't stay sane unless I'm actually doing something creative. So it was like, so just going out of my door and filming the fact that there's nothing there, that was something that was helping me get through lockdown and get through this uh, quarantine. I think with the We Are Not The Virus, what I wanted to do was just mark the fact that the black people that are sort of on the front lines haven't got this sort of respect that's due to them. I mean, with the sort of Windrush scandal that's been going on in the UK as a result of the hostile environment, that's been going on for years, you know, people fearing deportation. So what I wanted to do was just create something that sort of expressed how I was feeling about the sort of rhetoric around migration and migration sort of being a burden on the system. Whereas really the reality is migration is what keeps the country going, you know, because we're on the frontline services, being even more susceptible to this virus, fighting two viruses at the same time, the virus of racism, white supremacy, also this new coronavirus. And, you know, I used to do music, so I just went back to sort of writing and writing something a bit more lyrical. Yeah, that's how it sort of came about. And I just wanted to um, try and express myself using the tools that I had. And yeah, because I've got a camera and I've got a sound, I can, I can just do it, basically. Yeah, you guys have said that, you know, one of your goals, your purposes driving you is to tell untold stories, giving a voice to unheard voices. Why do you think that's such an important mission? Why are you doing it? Myself, personally, I mean, I didn't see myself fitting into the industry. So I didn't go to university. I didn't go to school to learn this. I was sort of on the fringes of it. And I actually grew up hating the media. 
as far as because I could see the way that they were portraying black people. It was just always negative. So I had a sort of big disdain for the media. I decided to do something about it and essentially create my own media. That enabled the industry to look at me and say, okay, yeah, we want a sort of piece of that. We want to work with him. And I just feel like, yeah, a lot of people don't see it as a space for them because of, you know, where's the olders sort of telling people about their experiences? If they are there, their experiences are 95% of the time negative. I think until we have more sort of ownership over, you know, the industry within the industry, it's going to not represent people until there's more people that have ownership in it, I think. I think I would add to that as well, Mike. And I'd say, you know, for me as a woman, it's that same level again. So as a black woman, it's, it's even more deep. And I'd say even just as an example, at our own launch of Black Wave, there was a, a white guy from the industry that came and he was just sort of like, oh, so how did you, who invited you? And I'm like, I'm the co-founder and I'm a director. And it's just the fact that even people don't see black women or see women in that space. It's a hostile environment. I think women are underrepresented in many areas of the industry and so many, so much of the crew are all male still, even if it's men of colour sometimes. And so... For us, it really runs deep. I think what we're trying to do with Black Wave is just do something a bit different, be representative, tell those great stories. And that representation goes from our characters on screen to our talent behind the screens as well. Do you think those frustrations of cracking into the industry make you more likely to become entrepreneurs just because you want to do things on your own terms, not have a boss who doesn't understand what you're trying to do or might not get it? I think it's a balance of the two. I think there's a split between people that can see already, I don't want to be in that space. I can see already that that's not for me and they're going to do their own thing. I think there are people that try to do it and then once they're in, they stay for a year, two years, a stint, and then they say, do you know what? I'm not interested in this. You know, and then there are people that obviously just don't don't get that access. And I, I'm sure I read a stat recently which said that Black women are like one of the big largest entrepreneurial groups. And that might come from all the things we've already talked about in terms of systemic sexism, racism, and so on and so forth. But also just a mindset to want to create and want to do your own thing. And not as much be your own boss, but just know that you have the drive and the ability and the ideas to make something. And again, not have to sell that to somebody else. You know, you're believing in your own product. Why does someone else have to validate that your product is good? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, for me personally, it was to do with the fact that I didn't see myself represented and I thought the industry was racist. There wasn't any black people I knew that were working in the industry. All the stories they were making about black people, were all, it's all negative. If it's not to do with music or singing, it is to do with crime, knife crime, gangs. That's the sort of two narratives I saw. So I definitely felt like I need to do my own thing because, uh, yeah, this industry is not really... If I, I don't want to go and get a job working in this industry because I don't want to add to the uh, stereotyping of my community, I actually want to tell these different narratives. And by the time I did actually get a job in the industry working for the BBC, I was at a position where I controlled the narrative. I could basically make what I wanted to make and tell those stories I wanted to tell. So, But it took me years to do that operating outside of it. So I definitely feel like, you know, racism and the fact that you get shut out of things definitely does make people become more entrepreneurial because they want to they wanna do things on their own terms and not have to deal with that. So, yeah. And now, you know, we're going into another lockdown for a month, which is going to be chaos for a lot of small business owners over the country. Are you guys baking into your business model the fact that it's just going to be difficult from now on? I mean, obviously, you launched this thing thinking it was going to be a completely different life and kind of year. Lo and behold, you've been really successful and done some awesome things. But are you just kind of saying, you know what, we're going to assume that it's going to be difficult 
shooting with people close together and you're going to like take on different jobs with that in mind? I think for us, like, you know, we're an indie and we're small. So we're agile and versatile and flexible. And just as a people, we've had to do everything. You know, we've, we've come through our careers doing everything already. And so actually, to me, I don't see any difficulty coming. To me, it doesn't feel any different. It just feels like, okay, this is the situation. How do we solve this problem? This is that situation. How do we solve it? The same way you approach any situation. We're not at the moment running some big, you know, Netflix or a BBC production with 100 crew and, and cast. We're a small team and yeah, we're agile. So we, we can be flexible. And I think for us, that's actually one of our strengths. What other challenges or lessons have you run into and learned over the past year? Literally, we just managed to shoot a short drama just before lockdown, which was really sort of uh, tight. I think dealing with the rules, I mean, yeah, we are lucky in some senses of being a small team because we can manoeuvre and be flexible. But, you know, in other things, you know, capacity can be an issue as far as like just having the capacity to, to do more things and to do more things that we want to do. I think, um, I suppose that's the sort of disadvantage of being a small business, along with the fact that there are more restrictions and I'd want to go out and shoot some more films over the next month, but I can't because certain organisations are not open. There's not going to be any gatherings. Some things are just out of your control, but we sort of work with what we can do, the best we can do. And I think, uh, I think that's testament to us being you know, small and being able to be as flexible as possible, more flexible than a bigger indie with a bigger infrastructure. So there's pros and cons to it, really. Coming up after the break, how a new wine bar managed to hold on during the last lockdown, despite having just opened only months earlier, and how all those lessons might make them survive the next one. Stay tuned. Hi, it's Amira. I'm speaking with small business founders who have used Instagram to help their businesses thrive despite the pandemic. Here's Christian Cruz, founder of independent deli and lifestyle store, Spoken Stringer. We're lucky that we had like different aspects to our business. So we have a retail and an online presence where we sell lifestyle goods and apparel. And our kitchens are very versatile as well. And so to our locations. So we were able to essentially just make a new collection online which might have been you know men's trousers or something like that but actually this time it was home deliveries and ready meals and veg boxes and home essentials and cleaning products and things like this which people were at the time panic buying and then we used our van to deliver locally through the lockdown so we haven't stopped at all we've just evolved and kind of adapted to each iteration of the restrictions and advice that's been coming out. Christian, has Instagram played a role in supporting your business during the pandemic? It was pretty much the only way to communicate. It was definitely important for us to stay relevant and, you know, be on people's minds and not just, you know, close everything down and think, well, that's the end of it. Which straight away we were, we were already keeping in touch and communicating with our I guess, local and national audience. You know, there are so many features available for businesses. Have you been experimenting with the options? There's been, I guess, a few new features over the, I guess, the last 12 months that have come onto Instagram, which we've been you know, trying to get to grips with. And again, different customers or different parts of our audience will use different features of Instagram. Some people still just kind of scroll through 
Some people just go through all the stories. Some people might follow links from your bio to your website, and then you know we might generate leads that way. We've definitely tried to utilize the features that have been available to us. Which features have you found most useful? Probably just the stories. I think a lot more people are using those stories and we can make little videos and pan around our shop or like when we're delivering, we can have a kind of point of view, quick snippet of what we're doing and where we're going and, you know, what's fresh that day. So it's good to be able to kind of just do little candid moments. I think that's really helped us. Any advice for other small businesses looking to use Instagram to connect with their audiences during these times? I guess it's literally just content. So just having, I think people maybe, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe people might get a bit hung up on the picture and the filter and the, has it got our brand identity written all across it? I think like staying in touch with people as much as you can is probably the best way to get through a lockdown or a pandemic rather than worrying too much about just really curating excellent content every single time. I think you just need to, you know, get the message across and be as real as possible. Hey guys, Danny here. One sector that's really been hit hard during the pandemic is food and drink, but it's been even more unfortunate for all those restaurants and cafe owners who opened their doors literally right before lockdown hit. Well, Charlie Taylor and his wife Natalie launched Cask a wine bar that serves organic, minimal intervention wine, what they call real wine, along with cheese, charcuterie, and more, back in October 2019. Only months later, COVID hit, and they were forced to shut down and pivot. As Charlie explains now, they survived by banking on community, doing virtual tastings, and being nimble. I've kind of always wanted a bar slash restaurant of my own. The idea for Cast came when we were on holiday in San Sebastian with two of our friends, Henry and Sophie, and all had that bit of wanderlust where sitting in great bars, where the waiters are really friendly, really knowledgeable, where the product is great and comes from local suppliers, where there's stories, great stories about the care they put into the product. We're sitting in these bars and thought, how good would it be to bring this kind of thing to the UK? Normally, you leave holiday and that wanderlust drifts away into the ether, but it kind of stuck with us, I guess. Henry and Sophie lived in Birmingham at the time. Natalie and I lived in Dubai, and uh, a venue came up one street away from Henry and Sophie, and they called us and said, are we up for it? And at the time, I'd just started a new job with a hotel group that was a really, really good and interesting job and I kind of wanted to stick with that so sadly turned them down and then Natalie and I went to the opening night of the bar it's in Birmingham it's called Grace and James I kind of looked around and thought oh this is really what I want to do so so at that point we kind of said okay well look we're going to do this job for a few more years and then let's look to do something together we started to look at destinations and that's when we kind of started to narrow in on Bristol and you opened last autumn, which was only months before the global pandemic hit, which is probably, you know, the worst possible timing for opening a, a hospitality or food and drink um, establishment. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could have opened in February and that would be worse. So we had a good four or five months run up to the first lockdown. We sit on the eve of lockdown two, as it sadly seems to be called. But yeah, so we had five months and we... We're very lucky in that time we built up quite a good community of customers. One thing that was very, very important to us, probably top of the list actually, was being 
not city centre being at the centre of a community. Our vision, which I hope has been realised, was that if a hugely knowledgeable person in this kind of field of wine and natural wine and real wine walks in, they'll be very surprised to see some of the bottles that we have and very delighted. But equally, if you walk in because it's round the corner from your house and you have no interest in wine, you'll enjoy your evening and you might not even realise the quality of what you're drinking from a producer perspective, but we'll just love the taste and love the, the atmosphere of the bar. And that's what we've set out to create. And I want to talk about how you guys managed to sustain the business throughout this terrible time. I mean, you made a really interesting point there just a bit ago that if you were to launch in February, for instance, you probably wouldn't have built up a strong enough community or customer base to know what they were missing after you went silent. But since you were around for five months or whatever, you know, you built up a good enough customer base where they could get excited about what you were doing. And then, okay, if you're going away for a few months, so be it. But they might come back because they know what they're missing. I think there's two things to that in terms of building up that loyalty. One is obviously the the atmosphere you create with your venue and making people want to come back time and again. One thing we wanted to be was that place which people will discover and then want to bring their friends because we all like to find a new place that we want to show off and have that status of discovering something new. So in our early months, that was a really important thing for us. And basically, I guess, word of mouth. That was really important to us. And two, if you're in the middle of a community and you create a venue which people like, they will, in tough times, look after you because effectively, if they're living close by, this is now going to sound lofty and arrogant, and I'm not saying we're this, but you live in certain locations because you want to live in that neighbourhood. You want to be close to those cafes, those bars, those restaurants, those shops, and you therefore look after them because subliminally your house price is going to go down if they shut. I guess it's gentrification, right, which has lots of negative connotations, but this is a positive one of them. You move to a place at a certain house price, you're living there for a while, restaurants, cafes, shops pop up and hopefully they're what you want them to be and then you look after them because as your house price is rising it's partly because of those the street that has been created around you and therefore if you don't look after the shops and they start closing down it becomes a less nice place to live you don't want to live there but your house price is dropping so now i think all that a lot of that is subliminally for people but i do think if you look after your neighbors they'll look after you in these tough times and i know this week charlie you've been doing a ton of events at cask uh, sort of a, a last hurrah before lockdown two begins. But what lessons have you learned since you launched, you know, originally that might help you throughout the next month or beyond? You know, the first couple of months of lockdown one here in the UK was just a bit surreal because business owners were testing out new things, but we all thought it was going to end within weeks almost. But now it's becoming increasingly clear that this is the new normal. We might have some periods of lockdown, some periods of no lockdown, but, you know, masks probably aren't going anywhere. E-commerce is growing in tons of different sectors. So what have you learned that's helping you grow, Cask? This is our first bricks and mortar business. And we have learned so many lessons in the first year without this pandemic being here. You know, it's a cliche, but you don't know what you don't know when you're starting this stuff off. So we've taken, we've had bad advice from different parties that we just assumed was good advice, followed it and nine months on, a year on, realised it was bad advice. You know, we've not put certain things in place process-wise that would have made things a lot easier. So efficiency-wise, I've spent weeks of my time in the last year pouring over spreadsheets, which rather than just using accounting software, you know, but all that stuff, if you haven't done it, you don't know. And it's until somebody points it out 
or you start querying why you're up at 4am in the morning doing a VAT return when you have accountancy software that can be doing it for you, which is pretty depressing. That's what we've learned. And our aim has never been to be a one-bar business. It's always to build a brand whilst maintaining a, a very local feel. I feel like we are pretty this way. Pre-lockdown, we were looking at second venues. That obviously has been put on the back burner now. But even now, six months on, we've learned so many lessons that could be applied to, to building the company and building the brand, which I just think in your first year, you just have to admit to yourself you're going to make cock-ups along the way and not be too hard on yourself when that happens and hope that the cock-ups aren't long-term damaging to the business and that you've got enough pennies in the bank that if you do make a costly mistake, it's not going to bring you down. And that was episode four of Looking Up. Coming up next week, we head to Scotland, to Edinburgh in particular, to see how businesses there have coped and pivoted, and of course, what they've learned along the way. Looking Up is created in partnership with Instagram, which builds products and features to promote and support small businesses and to help them grow in tough times. And for more stories from Courier, just head to couriermedia.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.